It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Pumped hydro. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au. My name is Kay Wenigle and I'm joined by my co-host Natalie Bucknell. Hello Kay, hello listeners. And Michael Steindl. Hi everyone. Today we'll be finding out about the latest United Nations IPCC report which is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and it's called IPCC 1.5 Degrees C, and that came out of the Paris Agreement. So starting in 1994, the central aim of the UN's efforts was to stabilise greenhouse gas concentrations at a level that would, and I quote, prevent dangerous anthropogenic interference with the climate system. What the word dangerous means has been debated ever since. So, to make sense of this report, we have with us today key strategist Philip Sutton, who is the author of Climate Code Red and manager of RSTI. Philip's work is focused on strategies for the very rapid restoration of pre-warming safe climate through a climate emergency response. Hi, Philip. Thanks for joining us. Hi. How are you? Good to have you with us. Thanks. Philip. Firstly, the report by the IPCC is actually provided by the UNFCCC, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. Do they then decide on what to do to make the, this happen, whatever their recommendations are, or are there other organisations and governments around the world that take action on this? Yeah, it's um, there's a couple of different levels of response. Um, the Framework Convention uh, is established legally separately from the um, IPCC, the, the scientist uh, body. Uh, but the uh, Paris Agreement in 2015 said um, we invite the scientists to provide us a report on the, the impacts of 1.5 um, and how they relate to 2 degrees. Um, and so then that report's now been done. It then goes... Um, it, 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 the IPCC itself has a series of government um, reps that sort of sit on the final sign-off on the scientific report, uh, but then that then goes back to the um, Framework Convention Secretariat and to the process there, and then they obviously have to decide what, what to do about it. But interestingly, the Paris Agreement itself put basically the full responsibility for the actual commitments um, as to what countries will do, it put that back on the countries. So after 25 years, we decided that actually countries should decide what they're going to do themselves. And so now the question is, what do individual countries make out of uh, out of this 1.5 degree report? Mm, well, that won't affect us very much, will it? <laughs> <laughs> yes, sorry. <laughs> the conclusion of the world's climate scientists in the report say that if we want to limit human-induced global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, we probably can do that, but it will be tough, given from where we're starting. So putting it in context, unless emissions are halved within 12 years and eliminated by 2050, we will have at least two degrees of warming. Is that your take on it? 
uh, as things currently stand, unless we actually go to zero emissions and start taking carbon dioxide out of the air very fast, we will actually go over 1.5 with the current trajectory so that the amount of carbon dioxide in the air is going to have its own ongoing warming effect for a period until things become equilibrated, if you like, so that the oceans warm up to their maximum potential given that level of carbon dioxide, etc. And also as we uh, we obviously cut the the number of coal-fired power stations and coal in particular in this case because they tend to have um, dirty uh, emissions, those dirty emissions have a paradoxical effect which is that they put out vast amounts of carbon dioxide that warms the planet. They also put out quite a large amount of um, uh, particulate um, pollution, which actually cool the planet a bit. So we've got half a degree of cooling caused by the polluting coal-fired power stations and so as we clean up the energy system, that extra half degree of warming can then manifest itself. Um, and so we are likely to... We will certainly sail past 1.5 degrees and we'll um, be moving well on towards 2 degrees kind of with the current setup. So I think that the IPCC report has been a bit reticent in, in the way that they've expressed how quickly we'll hit those, those levels. Um, I personally think that we... Um, we, we can certainly back out of 1.5 degrees. Like we may we may hit it, but we can back out of it, um, and we can probably you know we can avoid two degrees, but it's going to require an extraordinary level of effort. The IPCC report that's just come out does talk about unprecedented action, but it's certainly very unprecedented. If that makes sense, like we're talking about a full-on emergency response is what would be needed to avoid hitting 1.5 and then going on to two. So even with stop everything immediately, we're still well on track for one point five. With oh, we 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 we, we could we could close down every um, fossil fueled power station in the world today, and we would go up to one point five at least. Well, we're already at one point one, and as you say, there's point five of a degree um, with the aerosols in, in at the least atmosphere. Three quarters of a degree. Yeah. So if yeah, you add so that up, it's yeah. over one point five, isn't it? Mm. That's right. Exactly. And. Um, and so in terms of, you know, the objectives of, of Paris, uh, keeping things to a safe level, is 1.5 a safe level? <laughs> um, if you want 10 metres of sea rise over all the Pacific Atoll nations, then it's safe. If you want to flood every river delta in the in the world, you know, the Ganges, the Brahmaputra, the, you know, you know Yellow River, the Mekong... Whatever, Mekong uh, these places um, are home to over 100 million people and they also pr- provide food on a very large scale to a much larger area. So if you think that uh, flooding those is safe, then it's safe. I mean, I'm being ironic, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, no, it's not safe at all. It, Losing uh, all the world's the, coral reefs, yeah, the food Well, chain. exactly. The, the two degrees – well, sorry, the, the present temperature will wipe out most of the coral reefs in the world. The other thing is the irreversible effects. Like when every all the, the um, snow and the ice melts, mm. even if everything changes and we draw back carbon and whatever we do, mm. that ice doesn't come back, does it? Oh, well, it will. I mean, it will. It's a question of time scale. Uh, yeah, in the, thousands it, and the, thousands of years. The Greenland ice and stuff, isn't that a remnant of the ice age and it has its own microclimate? Any melting that happens on there and the Antarctic actually is irreversible, if, even if we go back to where we were well, pre-industrial. Well, uh, yeah, I'd, 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 I'd raised this question with a, um, a res- 
researcher, Eric Rigno, I'm not sure whether I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but uh, he led a, a team that was looking at the West Antarctic mm-hmm. and they just uh, released a report saying that um, there was a melting process underway there, which the dynamics of it are that he said it was um, self-reinforcing, so it would keep going from where we are now. And I, I, I questioned him on how you know how irreversible it was. And, and he said, like he, he just kept on saying it's irreversible. And, and I said, okay, under what conditions would it be reversible? And he said, oh, well, if you took the temperature back to about 1980, then perhaps that, that would work. Okay. So, so in other my, words... My reading is that... Mm, others I'm not are sure saying about that. that. Yes. Yeah, so. Anyway, can, can I? Just depends. It depends on the speed at which you do things. Because, it, just to take an analogy, okay, you turn your oven on, mm-hmm. and you, you let's let's say it's a, a fast response oven. Okay, you turn it up to a high temperature, and then you turn it straight off, mm-hmm. and you put your hand in. Now, you may not burn yourself because it's, the oven hasn't had enough time to actually absorb all that heat. So that there are some things where if you back out fast enough, even though you're at a temperature if maintained would be disastrous, that sometimes you, you can actually not have the full yeah, effect. But we're talking about moulding that's already been done by the time you stop. Um, um, the, the Arctic ice, for example, yep. can refresh really quickly. Okay. And really. Green, Greenland? Uh, Greenland, not so fast. Okay. Um, can, I, can I just – I hate interrupting the flow, but I just want to do a little sidebar here. The question of when we're talking about 1.5 and 2 degrees, yep. it seems to me there's a lot of confusion about whether you talk, whether people are referring to that as a limit that you hit and go over and come back to or whether it is the peak that you hit. Can you clarify that? Is there that confusion? Absolutely. What happened was that it was original. These these figures were originally proposed, like early, you know, if you go back ten years or fifteen, twenty years, they were proposed as absolute upper limits, so guardrails, you know, something not to be crossed. Then, as the lack of action progressed, people started to say, "Well, it's looking like we're going to cross these thresholds." So, bef- we'll to come avo- back <laughs> to, to avoid panic. You say, "Well, okay, we'll come back." Mm. And so then, then you're left in this really strange, confused policy space where you're never sure if somebody says, you know, 1.5 or two, you have no idea whether they're talking about and how far past they're planning to go and how quickly to come back. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Philip, before the show, you mentioned that there are good things and bad things about this report. Can you start to talk about those? Well, maybe I might start with the good things. Well, sorry, okay, I'll, I'll just summarise the bad things. The bad things are that the, the, the scientific material is presented in a – it's reticent, it's, it's, it's cautious, it's, it's very careful not to overstate the problem. Um, and so, therefore, the IPCC has consistently – understated the problem and so what happens is that when you look at the actual the way the world unfolds you know the scientists going out in the field and finding you know how much melting is occurring or how much is the sea going up or what's the temperature whatever they find that they report on the up upper end of all the projections of the ipcc so it's it's skewed to an understatement of the problem However, so okay, so that's 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 the problem because if you understate a serious problem, then you probably won't respond to it properly. So that's the problem. Okay, now the positive side is that this report has seems to have sent a shockwave through people who know something about climate, and we've we've got into a habit like this. This issue has been going on literally for a whole generation, like we're twenty five years of negotiations and discussion. And so it's we've we've become normalised, and so. People sort of think, we know it's a problem, it's a problem in the future, da-da-da-da. And even 
even though we're worried, we sort of think it's for later. What this report's done is said, we are, we are now right on the, on the edge of breaking into ca- catastrophic conditions. And, and, and even though they've understated it, in fact, maybe that's why people are so scared now, because they actually know the IPCC is so reticent. Historically, every IPCC report has been shown to be on the bright side yep. in retrospect. And so if they're actually saying we've got serious problems and at 1.5 degrees we'll destroy 70 to 90% of the world's coral reefs, then probably in the back of people's mind they're saying, well, maybe it's not 70 to 90, maybe it's 90 to something. <laughs> you know. And when, when they say... Um, at two degrees, uh, will destroy li- literally all of the coral reefs, bar about one one or two percent. Then they're thinking, you know, like is it one <laughs> or two? Because the one or two percent. Yeah, yeah. So, so I think I think that's what's happened. That there's been this kind of shock of awakening that that we are now in a time of of consequences, and people are teeter. I think people, a lot of people, are teetering on the brink of kind of giving up and just saying, okay, well, we're going to live in a post-apocalyptic world and they're sort of hoping that they're not the ones who will be, you know. Well, it's interesting you say that because if governments around the world do take action and Australia still doesn't, it doesn't even have a um, national energy guarantee, I heard this week that the um, Australian industry has flagged that it's going to create its own self-regulating emissions targets because the government isn't. That's pretty embarrassing, isn't it, when these are reports that governments are meant to take up and then you have industry bodies saying we're going to create our own. And then on top of that, you have the federal liberal liberal government saying, oh, no, don't do that. That's a really retrograde step. Mm. So we're sort of eating ourselves or something. <laughs> yeah, it is It is quite weird because, um, I mean, Australia is the Saudi Arabia of, of uh, export uh, coal and gas. Uh, and in other words, we, we export just about the world's largest quantities of coal and gas, which makes mm-hmm. us comparable to Saudi Arabia, which exports mm-hmm. the largest amount of oil. And so it, it, in one sense, you shouldn't be surprised that Australia has very bad policy because obviously the, these industries are very powerful and so on. But it's quite extraordinary when some elements of the fossil fuel industry themselves actually realise that the government's gone too far in, in the kind of extreme direction yeah, it's it's a pretty strange situation. So we're exporting, <coughs> excuse me, we're exporting eighty percent of our coal, and as as you say, the government finds it very hard to say no to that income. But <coughs> we actually have our um, environment minister coming out and disagreeing with the IPCC report and saying that coal will continue to be an important part of our resources into the fifties, twenty fifties, and beyond. Yeah, well, I mean, that's just the coal industry speaking when that minister that's says our that. government, yeah. <laughs> no, oh, but, okay. no, but it's the coal industry speaking <laughs> yes. when, that, when, when, when that's said. Yes, the government's sorry. just a puppet. Mm-hmm. I mean, I hesitate usually to, to speak in those terms because um, the reality of governments is almost, always more complex than this notion that they're just a mouthpiece for one industry, except in the case of, of climate policy, this the national government we currently have is the mouthpiece for the more extreme end of the fossil fuel industry. In fact, I just had a typo, I noticed. I was calling it feral government instead of federal <laughs> government. <laughs> if you've just tuned in, we're listening. We're talking to Philip Sutton from Green Innovations and we're talking about the IPCC report, 1.5 degrees. Apparently the energy market analyst said that 80% of Australia's coal is exported, as Mike just pointed out. Is that a factor in terms of what governments should be considering? Because it is an economic decision, isn't it, that 
we have to export it something and we have to make money and therefore coal is doing that at the moment. It, it is a hard decision for them to make. Oh, absolutely. I mean, exports are important because they provide you the cash that enables you to uh, buy imports and no no country wants to have to produce absolutely literally everything that they need because it's not a very efficient use of labour around the world and expertise and what have you. So, yes, we, we definitely need to re- replace those those exports. And, um, and we need a functioning economy to be able to, to enable this transition. Absolutely, well. that's right. Because it's it's we we are going to act. I mean, paradoxically, to solve this climate problem, we will actually have to ramp up the like the the economy will have to be running at full speed to be able to build all the you know wind farms and solar farms and the you know change agriculture and rebuild our buildings so that they're efficient and not using fossil fuels. And I mean, if you think about all the work that um, you know Beyond Zero Emissions has done and all those reports to implement that, that all those. Structural, cha- physical, structural changes to the economy really should be done in a ten-year period or less, if you could, you know, bring it about. That requires a, a huge amount of investment. So yes, you do, you do need a functioning economy that's uh, that's got capacity. Um, but the thing is that um, uh, economies do change. The world does change. Um, uh, so we ha- we have to start getting. We have to actually just bite the bullet and say, okay, our job now is to. Um, wind down, consciously wind down very fast the um, offending parts of the industry structure that we've currently got and we have to be deliberately building up uh, our capacity in in other areas of the economy so that we can replace the exports. Um, That requires action by government and it's none of this stuff... uh, We keep on talking about... Sorry, the government or the, the... People in general, the media commentary, tend to sort of talk about this as a sort of a long, slow process... There are things that happen in the world in a long, slow way, and there are also things that every now and then when you have a crisis happen very fast, and we're now at the crisis point. And so we have to, rather than just panic, we actually have to have a really concerted effort. But it's going to be on a, on a speed and scale which literally is like the economic mobilisation of World War Two or something like that. That's what we'll have to do. Philip, I want to get, um, come back to the point you made about the, the pluses and minuses of this report and, and the real value and position of this report. Uh, If I could just quote back to you a couple of things you've written in in some of the blogs. The selection of 1.5 target was a mistake right from the beginning. 1.5 degrees is catastrophically too hot. The report confirms the rejection of 2 degrees. 1.5 could be seen as a reference point, not a a target. Uh, There is no carbon budget left for 1.5 degrees. You said about people waking up with this report, but surprisingly to me, you said people in the know. I would have thought people in the know, or you sort of explained they were cruising along in their cognitive dissonance and sort of hoping, but what about people not in the know? And for people in the know, okay, if this is a wake-up call, where to now? Because you've got to start running pretty bloody fast to do this all in mm. 10, 12 years. Well, that's right. The the mainstream, the players in the mainstream. So that's um, climate uh, activists who mm-hmm. who lobby the system. The key people who influence government policy, you know, public servants or political, op- you know, party operators or whatever, um, advisors, people who from industry. So and all the people who kind of constitute the the what would you call it the climate industrial complex or something. Yeah. They they have been so used to doing things slowly that it actually 
it's very hard for them. And they've, been, they've known about the idea of doing this emergency response because we've been banging on it about it. it it's right from <clears throat> your Climate Code Red book, yeah, um, that's right. which was, was my awakening. Yeah, well, that um, was 10 years ten, ago. Ten years ago. Yeah. It was just embarrassingly a long time ago. Mm. Um, so the idea of an emergency response has, has been around from other people. Like uh, Al Gore was talking about it in 2006. Uh, Lester Brown was talking about it uh, like 20 years ago and so on. So the idea is there. So people have kind of protected themselves from actually doing because they, they think it's it's not practical it's not it's not realistic and so they've they're very rehearsed in this in this way of thinking and so it's it's going to be quite challenging to get people to actually connect the notion that the IPCC said we have 12 years to avoid catastrophe and we have to close down the coal industry and, and they should have said and oil and gas and you know wrong sort of cement and you know wrong sort of agriculture and, and etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, it, it, it will take quite a, a challenge for people to actually start shifting mode. Now, I think the way through that is that people, f- from experience, I found that people find it very hard to just simply take good advice from people on the margin. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like they, they hear you and then they just blank you out. Um, I think what, what makes more uh, impact on people is seeing a new way of acting manifesting itself in the world. And that's, for example, why I'm unbelievably excited about the fact that Darabin City Council, which this this yeah. might sound like a weird thing, a a tiny little local council in somewhere in Melbourne you know, um, has taken on the climate emergency approach. Uh, it declared a climate emergency, the first council in the world to do yeah, it. Yeah, I mean they've recognised the emergency problem. Yeah. They're now working through the difficult um, process of figuring out what the hell does that mean in mm-hmm. actual practice. But the thing that's so exciting about Darabin is that it's a genuine effort to try and get to terms with this thing. I mean, it's not mm. perfect, but mm. it's an, a really genuine effort. And, and to use that as a, give that as a blueprint yeah. for our and, and so there's an invitation, in a sense, going out to all other councils around Australia to become involved, do, do their own version of, of this thing. and Which is um, already starting to happen. Which, exactly. That, um, Moreland City Council has, has mm. recently recommitted themselves to, to this approach and we'll see how that unfolds over the And Los Angeles. Yeah, and worldwide, that's right. Yeah, Los Angeles is uh, interesting because it's uh, a city council that covers four million people. Mm. Uh, there's um, uh, Montgomery County on the eastern side of the US which covers a million people and they've also done the same thing. So all told, we've probably got mm. now between the two countries about uh, over five million people covered by... Councils so we're beings. distracting you. This was an example of of new ways of doing things that. Well, the bring the, it the, the, the idea is that we can actually demonstrate what happens when a, when a government says we will take the emergency seriously and we will act on it and we'll spread spread involvement so that we get the, the local, state, and national levels on side. I think that this this will start to show people that this kind of change can happen, and so then it'll speed up other people sort of thinking about it, getting involved. That means that the grassroots level has to do all the heavy lifting. In the, in the first instance. I mean, clearly we can't deliver the whole thing because, you know, the, the heavy-duty system is the thing that causes the problem. They've got to stop doing the problem. They've got to actually become part of the solution. But the, the, with any of these changes, it, it, it's usually – you start where you can and yep. we can start at the grassroots Absolutely. and we're now moving up through the local government level. When we get enough local governments on side, then we'll get state governments to, to – buy-in as well. When we get enough state governments, then we get the national government. So, um, yeah. Is there a conflict for the UN with this report versus their other broader sustainable development goals for third world development and so on? Oh, yes. I mean, all of these efforts are 
understandably riven with contradictions and so on. So, mm. yes. Okay. I was just uh, reading this morning that the um, Energy Security Board is saying that they actually haven't stopped work on the NEG because they haven't been asked to. (laughs) And that really highlights to me how impotent this government is, that it doesn't even – it says there is no NEG except for pricing of electricity apparently, but um, it actually hasn't asked the ESB to stop work on it which mm. actually is a good thing through its own negligence, but that's mm. quite disappointing and concerning to me. It's, it's kind of interesting. Australia's a funny position because we've got um, a society that's a kind of a, I don't know, you know, we're up there with modernity, et cetera, et cetera, people well-educated, whatever, so that people know that they need to... Sorry, as many people in Australia know that we need to have a sustainability transition as anywhere else in the world, probably pretty much, uh, and yet our government is so bad. So I think we are actually in a kind of like an internal... I think Australia is in a period of internal crisis, which is why you see the political instability, because we've got an old direction of the economy which is completely past its use-by date and, and is you know has to be, has to be scrapped and changed. A, a range of people actually kind of understand that, but we haven't been able to crack through yet to actually um, get enough concentration of change. So we're in a real period of crisis. Um, if I can fit in one very quick final one before you tell us where we can find out more, Philip. Um, in the months leading up to this report release, I kept hearing that it was around doing the rounds of governments for approval and the governments like the Australian government were doing their best to water it down, to con- to curtail the scientists' predictions. Would you agree with that, that- it has been nobbled to some extent? Oh, it, it's definitely been nobbled to some extent. But the, the really funny thing is that they didn't manage to do it 100%. Like the nobbling didn't get rid of 100% of the the troublesome mm. facts of life. And so what what's made its way through has been shocking enough that it's actually having the effect in the world probably that you know, to a large extent that we need. But it, the next thing is how do we, how does the community, how does how do we respond to this report and then carry through? And where can action? people find out more from you? Um, Climate Code Red website? Uh, uh, yes, there's a lot of material at, um, on the Climate Code Red website. And, um, RSTI? If, if, yeah, RSTI. So if you, if you Google for that, you'll find my contact details. Oh, yeah. Fantastic. Thanks very much for your time, Philip. That's right. Thanks yeah, for coming in. Brilliant. And very, very timely. We've been speaking to Philip Sutton from Green Innovations about the latest IPC report. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the Climate Change Solutions think tank, Beyond Zero Emissions, and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network. If you want to listen to this show or any of the others we've done, go to the BZE website and click on Podcasts. If you enjoy the program and can donate to help cover airtime costs, and keep us on air, please go to the BZE website and click on the Donate button. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you again next week. Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.